2 Timothy chapter 2. Hopefully you're all there. Before we get into that, though, a real quick recap. Recap for part one. Last week we touched on, in letter A, sexual purity being an integral part of sanctification and the will of God. We saw that when we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and how it is essential. It is, there's not too many times in the Bible, I think maybe 13 times overall, where the will of God, and that phrase is mentioned, and this is one of them. It's crucial for our sanctification is that purity. It's that holiness that God has called us unto. We need to make sure that we're living up to that standard. I had this cross-reference I wanted to get down last week, but... Hey, the beautiful thing about having a part two is whatever I don't get last week, I get to do here. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, follow along with me in verse 20. Paul's writing to Timothy again. This is his last letter. This is right before he loses his head. Very integral stuff that he needed to get out to his disciple. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. And as a reminder, each and every single one of us in here, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a vessel for who? For the Holy Spirit. The moment of salvation, Jesus Christ took His Holy Spirit and implanted it in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You're a vessel. He's like, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth. And some to honor, gold and silver, and some to dishonor, wood and earth. Which are you? Which were you this past week? Verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself of these, and whenever you see a phrase like that, especially if you're starting off just looking at that verse, the verse before, you got to go up a few verses to see, okay, what are the these that he's talking about that we need to purge ourselves in? All right, jump back up to verse 16 for context. He says, but shun profane and vain babblings. Don't listen to them, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. The more of you, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this of yourselves, but if you find yourself just, you know, listening to too much news or following along on too much social media, just things that are of the world, if you can constantly consume it and constantly have it in your ears and in your mind and your eyes, you will increase the more ungodliness because you'll be focused on that and not the things of Christ. We need to shun those things. We need to not have it constantly in our ears and in our head. And look at verse 17. He says, And their word will eat as doth a canker. It's like a, well, you know, a canker sore. But in this sense, it's almost very, very cancerous. It's going to eat away at whatever it is latched onto. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus? Right here, Paul just, just name drops these two guys that were causing trouble in Timothy's church. He's like, these guys, they're just running their mouths and they're not doing the work of the Lord. And he says, Timothy, if you don't put an end to this and if you don't shun them for this, man, their word is just going to eat away at your ministry. Their word is just going to eat away at what you're doing to the actual people who are listening around and want to hear what you have to say. In verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And look what he says here. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ do what? Depart from, Depart from iniquity. 
Those sins that easily beset you, those sins that get you out of control, whether it be sexual in nature or if it be another kind of appetite for destruction, you need to shun it. You need to depart from it because in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of earth and wood. Sorry, I had to go back and look at it. I was going to name other things. Earth and stone? No, that's a company. And some do honor and some do dishonor. In other words, in every church, there are people who are struggling with sin issues. If they let those sin issues control them, instead of them controlling the sin, them controlling and having a possession of their vessel, as 1 Thessalonians says, not letting themselves get out of control, they're yielding unto righteousness, then you'll be in honor of gold. You'll be in, you'll be in a vessel of honor. But those who let the sin control them, it's going to be dishonoring. And that's where he goes in verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. What's that next word? Sanctified. Sanctified, set apart, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Oh, and here's this very familiar verse to all of us. Verse 22, flee also youthful, what? Lusts. But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, a heart that is not wild, a heart that is not out of control and intemperate, incontinent. Now, when you see that phrase, flee youthful lusts, is there a story or are there other verses that come to mind? The real prevalent one I'm thinking of in Genesis. Joseph. Joseph. And who? Uh, Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife. Very similar circumstance to what we've been talking about. Where Joseph, man of God, the servant of the Lord, in a situation that man he wished he wasn't in, but sometimes that's life. We find ourselves in a situation that we don't want to be in. Are we going to stand firm in what we believe, or are we going to give in to the world system? When Potiphar's wife tried to tempt Joseph, even latching on to his clothes, lie with me, my husband is gone. He ran and he fled. Completely bare. Open and exposed. Vulnerable. <clears throat> Saying, when we're vulnerable... When we're letting it known that, you know what, man, I got flaws, that's a trait of humility. And humility is the absolute best character quality that a Christian can have. But when we try to hide and conceal things, and we're like, no, 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 I can withstand. I can still stay here with Potiphar's wife and just, I'll just withstand her. I'll withstand the temptation. You're making yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for such. That's why Christ says to flee. I love it. There's a very interesting proverb. It's Proverbs 6, verse 5. And it says, Deliver thyself as a roe or a deer from the hand of the hunter. For those of you hunting here, you know that a deer is not always looking out for hunters. A deer sometimes doesn't even know that a hunter is there. But man, you hear that crack of that fire go, you hear that crack of that shot as it's being sent out. Whether it hits a deer or doesn't, they're off running. They are off running. They're fleeing, and they want to escape from the hunter. That's what sexual temptation is like. 
You want to make sure that whenever you're tempted, that you are running because man, the hunter, that roaring lion, he walketh about just like a lion hunts its prey, seeking whom he may devour. Man. Sam, were you there two years ago when I did the men's study? Which one? The... When I talked about the lion? I don't know if I mentioned this in here or not. The wanderer study? Wanderer to warrior? No, it was the everyday carry. So, this is in my notes. I think I have to be careful how I word this. Something interesting I, I discovered, you know, that whole passage in 1 Peter 5 with Satan being a roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I equated that with, uh, I think it was, oh, be sober, be vigilant. You know, you have to be watchful. You have to be looking for these attacks that come in your life. And that's why the Bible says in, I think it's 1 Peter 1.13, I think we looked at it last week, to uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Well, loins specifically, it's, I think they're tenderloin, it's your legs, it's where the most of your strength comes from, but biblically speaking, the loins, it's actually a picture of your, your reproductive ability. And as soldiers in Christ and as believers in Christ, as the bride of Christ and our husband Jesus, we want to reproduce other like-minded believers, do we not? Is that not the mission? You know what's interesting about a lion when it hunts? You know what it goes after first? Specifically, well, I don't know, yeah, there does go for the neck to try to kill it easily, but specifically, if you study out uh, female lions and how they hunt, they go for the loins of its prey. I looked that up, uh, I mean, it was just watching how lions hunt, and they actually said that female lions, when they're hunting, they try to get their prey down, and then they go straight for where it counts to completely derail their prey so that they can't get back up again. You study out the strange woman of Proverbs, it's the exact same method that she works. In fact, the Proverbs actually say that it leads many a strong men to the slaughter as an ox to kill it. That is how serious and how important it is for us to remain pure, specifically with sexual sins as it pertains to this day and age. Because that lion is walking about seeking whom he may devour. And if he can get you knocked down in that regard, he's won, at least for the time being. But there's always hope. So that was point number one. And then we saw also in letter B, sorry, point letter A. And then we saw in letter B as a recap that we are to be sober in thought sight and word in order to possess the reins of our heart. Now, this actually brought up a, a very interesting conversation last week and a little bit of a point on just, you know, the idea of temperance and self-control. Uh, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I, so it's up to us to possess our vessel. It's up to us to, to be strong in this area and to make sure that we don't give in to the things that we shouldn't give in to and that we shouldn't be in a situation or a position that we ought not to be in. And it brings up a very interesting biblical principle throughout all of the Bible. And it's one of those things where once you start studying this out, like you, these verses just start popping up all over the place where you see this. There's a biblical principle that all throughout Scripture, God does His part but he's interested in a partnership with us. So he will do his part to maybe set up the stage for something, and he expects us to do our part 
of following through in an area. Most simplistic, fundamental thing I can think of. Salvation. Jesus Christ provided a way of escape from hell by dying on the cross, dying our death on the cross as a substitute. He provided the way of salvation. He offered himself as a gift. But what is our part? Receiving. To receive the gift. He did it all. He did the work. There's no extra work that we need to do or anything that we need to add in order to, uh, to achieve this salvation or to inherit this salvation. He did it all. It's all of Him. But unless you don't receive the gift of His dear Son, you don't have salvation. God did His part of providing a way for salvation. We need to do our part of receiving it. And not only that... Oh, forgot to mention. And to knowledge, add temperance as a review. I love this passage too. This is the passage about I am the vine, ye are the branches. Christ is the vine and we are branches that are in him, smaller. Christ tells us, abide in me. Stay with me. Walk with me on a regular daily basis and I in you. Why? The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Why? Well, it's because of what his part is. For without me, ye can do nothing. You know what's interesting? That branch in and of itself is dead. That branch cannot bring forth any fruit. It gets all of its power from the vine it's grafted in. Like if this is a, a, a vine, you have branches that are grafted in, and that's more of a, of a doctrinal picture of us as Gentiles or the church being grafted in because the original branch was supposed to be Israel. That's a whole other doctrinal study for another time. But that branch, it gets its lifeblood from the nutrients the vine gets from the ground. But we have to make sure that we abide. We have to make sure we stay there. Jesus Christ, He does His part of giving us everything we need to do to walk with Him on a daily basis. He gives us power and love and of a sound mind in 2 Timothy 1.7. But we need to make sure that we are abiding in Him and walking with Him. That's our part. Last example, 1 Corinthians 3. Turn over there. First Corinthians chapter three. Look with me in verse five. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? Here's what Paul's saying. I've planted, Apollos watered. That was their part. But who gave the increase? Who actually brought forth the fruit? God, that's his part. God is interested in partnering with us. Look down at verse uh, 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. You see, God gets all the glory because it's all him. It's, he alone has the power. He alone has the strength to help us be sustained and temperate all throughout the day, all week long. But there are, there are certain times where he expects us to do our part, where we yield to him and not to looking at things we shouldn't be. To yield and submit to him instead of 
being a little bit extra flirty, especially with girls or boys that we definitely shouldn't be talking with because we're unequally yoked, etc. and so forth. And even just from the emotional side of things, making sure that we yield our... Oh, I can't believe she said that about me. Oh, it's all right. I know exactly the rumor to spread around school about her. Nope, I'm going to yield over here to Christ. No. You see, God does His part. He'll give you the strength to say no. We just have to do our part of yielding. So that's where this whole idea of self-control, that doesn't mean or imply to say that it's entirely up to us. It's just God does His part by giving us the strength, the ability to say no, because before you were saved, you realized that you were a slave to sin, that there was no way that you, you could have said no in a stance of like, oh no, I, I choose to do this because of my walk with Christ. Well, no, you weren't saved. Your spirit was dead. You're a slave to sin. There's nothing you could do about it. Now that you are saved, you now have the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit residing in you to say no to temptations, to say no to saying or thinking that thing that you shouldn't be thinking or saying. We just have to do our part and actually, all right, Lord, I trust you. I've memorized all these verses about, man, just my tongue and how I can constantly just seem like I'm cutting down or I'm just constantly spreading false gossip and lying to people. And I'm just out of control in this area. Lord, you've given me everything I need in order to, to resist. And the Bible says that if I resist the devil, he'll flee from me. I just need to actually resist and have the control and the restraint to hold back the leash and not let my flesh or my heart take control. Make sense? So that's the recap from part one. Now part two, the application overall. Where, where is there a great example that we can see in the Bible of a man who embodies all of this? I mean, again, last week we looked at temperance and how it pertains to sexual appetites. We looked at continence and how it pertains to just drinking and excess of, of indulgences. And we also looked at just the whole idea of emotions and letting our emotions get the best of us and take a hold of us. Man, I'll tell you what, if there is one area in all of the Bible that summarizes everything like this, it's Judges 16. You know what's going on there? Anybody see in the background picture? Samson. Samson. But before we get to that, I do find it's a little interesting that the, the, the two hot-button issues in Christianity today, it's sexual immorality and social drinking. So a, a while back, I did a, a study on this, and I looked at some stats just to kind of see what's going on right now. What, what do people perceive, and what's the actual stats and lists of things as it pertains to temperance? So here's what I found. This study here, it's talking about the people who are more likely to drink alcohol and people who view alcohol as morally wrong. As you can see here, amongst uh, Protestants, and again, we're covering in church history that Protestants, Baptists don't really come from Protestants. We'll see that more this week. But for the sake of this Pew Research Center poll, it includes people like us, people who believe somewhat similar things as we do. 51% uh, drink alcohol, half of Protestants, half of Christians today. So all of the people at your schools that have a profession of faith, that they call themselves Christians, they name the name of Christ, half of them would think that drinking is okay. 
and it's just getting worse and worse. 15 mind-blowing statistics about pornography in the church. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. 40 million. The average visit lasts 6 minutes and 29 seconds. There are around 42 million porn websites, which totals around 370 million pages of porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is, oh goodness, more than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And by the way, this study was done before the NFL and the NBA went woke and went broke. This is back when they actually were making money. It also has more combined revenues than ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Any of you planning on getting married here in the future? Better get it shored up now. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. Hmm. I had that age beat by four years. Neighborhood kid when I was seven years old, not even first grade. Hey, do you want to see my dad's stash? Stash of what? And 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involving one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Now we're starting to get to the church aspect of things. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults 18 and 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for porn use. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. Not just the guys anymore. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most dangerous, damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. And only 7% of pastors say their church has a program to help people struggling with pornography. Not to say you need a program for that. We would call that discipleship here. But the point is, there are people and your leaders are here to help. Porn is rewiring a whole generation, Christians included. The porn pandemic is engulfing the Christian world as well. The Barter Group discovered that there is virtually no difference in the monthly porn use of non-Christians versus Christian men. Porn use is even worse among the younger Christian generation. In 2019, the Freedom Fight conducted a survey of more than 1,300 practicing Christian college students from over 30 different campuses across the country. The men and women we surveyed were involved in a campus ministry, and they considered their faith in Christ to be very important to them. Many of them were leaders in their ministries. What we found was alarming. 89% of the Christian men surveyed watch porn at least occasionally, 61% view it at, at least weekly, and 24% watch porn daily or multiple times a day. 51% of these men said that they were addicted to porn. These are our future Christian leaders, husbands, and fathers. But this is not just a guy's problem. 
Porn use is also pl uh, plaguing women in Christian colleges. Though growing in Christ is very important to these young women, and many of them are in leadership in their campus ministry, pornography remains a part of their lives. 51% of this group watch porn at least occasionally. 70% of them either watched porn or had a sexual hookup in the last 12 months. Still thinking about going to college? Just out of curiosity. Christian college? Just out of curiosity. Roughly one-third of evangelical Protestants say casual sex between consenting adults is always or sometimes acceptable. Yeah, roughly one-third, but... Um, Take a look at this here. So this chart is, it's always okay to have sex uh, with consenting adults. It's sometimes okay. It's rarely okay. It's never okay. We know the answer to that, right? It's never okay. But yet, only 33% of this group polled say that it's never okay. 32% say sometimes it's okay to have sex before marriage. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson didn't have any eyes anymore because they were plucked out because of all the garbage that he allowed into his life. And he's asking the Lord to anoint his eyes so that he can have vision one last time before he perishes. Samson had a temperance problem. If you have a temperance problem, there's hope. On your outline. Turn over to Judges 14. Glad we kept the door open. You know the thing about uh, stats, charts, tables, polls? They're always worse than what it's actually reported. Letter A on your outline. Samson had an eye problem, a pride problem, and a flesh problem. What does 1 John 2.16 say about those three things? All that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. These are our enemies on a regular basis. And here, in these three verses, we're going to see Samson had all of them coming. Can I get a reader for verses 1 to 3? Sam. <clears throat> and Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines now. Therefore, get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, or among all my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And, and Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Well, verse 1 is kind of easy. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman of Timnath. What's that? Lust of the eyes. A woman of the Philistines. Who's the most famous Philistine you can think of? So you know these are not friends of Israel, right? These would be unequally yoked people. 
They don't believe the same things as you. They have fleshly carnal desires that are going to drag you down if you're in a relationship with them. But he saw her. And not only that, when he saw her, something else started happening. He goes to his mom and dad and honors them. Speaks very, very kindly to his parents and reverential to his parents when he says, Now therefore, get her for me to wife. Get her for me to wife so I can do things that husbands and wives do. Lust of the flesh. <laughs> and then his mom and dad, they try to reason with him scripture. What about of your own brethren? What about of all my people? People who are like-minded with you. People that would be equally yoked to help you accomplish a mission of plowing the land that God has given you. Uh, but he just doesn't listen to anything his dad has to say. And instead, he once again, very reverentially, says, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Pride of life. Didn't care at all about what his dad had to say. Because he was so caught up in the lust of his flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the pride of his life. He needed his eyes anointed. He didn't have temperance. Let her be. You know what else is interesting about Samson? No one would doubt his strength, bravery, or valor. But virtuous, he was not. Look at verse 5. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him, the lion. He tore him apart as he would have torn apart or rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand. He did it with his bare hands. But he told not his father or mother what he had done. If you remember... About a month ago, when we looked at virtue, adding to your faith virtue, it's strength, it's valor, it's bravery to do the right thing. But as we talked about with virtue, you can do the right thing, but for the wrong motive, and therefore it doesn't really make it virtuous. He had strength, he had valor, bravery to face this lion, and he tore him with his bare hands, but he didn't tell his mother and father about it. He didn't do the right thing, and you'll see why that matters in just a little bit. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Do the right thing. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there a what? A whore. And went in unto her. Yeah, not virtuous. He didn't do the right thing on both occasions. But to look at him... If you saw a man tear a lion apart with his bare hands, would you not think to yourself, that dude's brave. That guy's got strength. He must be top-notch. To look at him from the external appearance on a Sunday or a Wednesday, he looks like he has it all together. Let her see. You know what else we find about Samson? He was not very knowledgeable concerning the law of Moses. Or the Word of God, in other words. So go back to chapter 14. Look at verses 8 and 9. Because to virtue we are to add knowledge. And to knowledge we are to add temperance. We go back to chapter 14. Look at verse 8. And after a time he returned to take her, 
the woman that he was interested in, and turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Why does that matter? Because of what the law of Moses, the word of God has to say on that. Leviticus 11.24 and for these ye shall be unclean. You're in sin, in other words. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them, the context being beasts, shall be unclean until the even. Samson was a smart guy. And you'll even see that here in a little bit with what he does. Very smart and wise. Very knowledgeable. But not in the things that mattered. He didn't know the word of God. Not only did he sin by getting honey out of a carcass, which the law of Moses, the word of God, strictly forbid, he then gave to his father and mother and caused them to sin, albeit in ignorance. That's what sin does. That's what your sin will do. Not only will you add sin to sin and iniquity to iniquity, you will cause others around you to stumble as well. Letter D. Temperate? <laughs> From what we've seen so far, did Samson possess his vessel either in his sexual purity or being sober in thought, side, and word as far as his, his heart was concerned? Look at chapter 15. And this was after... Uh, uh, let's just read verse 3. And Samson said concerning them, because I think this was after the Philistines tried to trick him and twist him, and they tried to entice him, uh, and so he gets back on him. Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines. Yeah, it's very easy to justify your sin. Though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail, tied them together, and put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing cord of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing cord with the vineyards and olives. You ever seek to get vengeance on someone who did you wrong? That's what he did here. When you do that, it's a demonstration and a, and a display that you do not have control. You're giving over to your emotions. You're giving over to your anger, to your rage. I get it. It sucks when people do you wrong. It sucks when people say something about you that's not true or said something about you that is true, but you told them in confidence and then they turn it and use it against you. It sucks when that happens. And as much as you want to get back at them, it's not what we're called to do. We're not called to be intemperate and out of control, which is what he was doing here. Jump down to chapter 16 again. Verse 15. This is Delilah. Again, she was a harlot. She was a spy. She did not love him. She only sought to work with the Philistines so that they could get back at Samson. And she tells him this sob story. Look at verse 15. And she said, and this is after she tries, what's the secret of your strength? What's the secret of all of your strength and your power, Samson? And all these times he kept telling her these lies. 
And then she just kept proving herself as a harlot again and again and again, showing herself that she's trying to get him to be tripped up, and he stays with her. Because again, some people are addicted to chaos. Some people are addicted to destruction because they're intemperate. And so here, after the, think of the second time of him tricking her as she's trying to trick him, here's what she says to him. And she said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee when thine heart is not with me? And you have room to talk, Delilah? But yet, thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass. Oh, goodness, you want to mark this down. When she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart. See, Samson was also a man who gave in to his emotions. He let his heart dictate things. He wasn't just a lusty, carnal, fleshy man. From the pressing and the urging of someone who was supposed to love him, who was supposed to be selfless and look out for his best interests, he gave in. He didn't stand his ground. He gave in. Oh, man, what kind of a guy am I? Okay, all right, I'll do I'll tell you. I'll tell you because I do believe you love me and I want to prove my love to you. Even as a guy, it can be very easy to become emotionally detached. Be careful. Be careful with that girl at school who might press you and urge you daily. And girls, especially with guys who do that to you, be careful and on guard. So he definitely was not in control, whether from a anger or a carnal sexual appetite sort of a way, or even in his emotions, he was completely out of control. And his sin had consequences, but there is still hope. The solution in letter E. Solution is humble submission to the Lord and death to self. Judges 16.28 He tells her that his strength is in his hair because he's a Nazarene. Nazarenes weren't supposed to shave their hair. And so they shave his head. They capture him. He's not able to break free. His sin finally caught up to him. Your sin will find you out and it will catch up to you. Verse 28, as we already saw, Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember thee, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me. I pray thee only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. In this verse, I don't know if you saw it or not, but all three of our traits so far are in it. Remember me. That implies a relationship. That implies true knowledge. Strengthen me. That's virtue that I may be avenged from my eyes because now he's in control of his faculties and he wants sight. He wants vision. He lacked these things and now he's blind just like 2 Peter 1.9 says at the top of your outline. He could not see afar off anymore. 
And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with the left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. No, I don't care what any Christian counselor says. This is not a passage in Scripture that justifies suicide. No, never. This is an Old Testament picture. He was going to die anyways. He just went out swinging. This is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth of dying to self. Luke 9, 23. And he said to them all, this is Christ speaking, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself of his sexual carnality. Deny himself of wanting to give in to his emotions. And let them control the way. And take up his cross daily and follow me. When Christ took up his cross, he went to march up Golgotha Hill to lay down his life and to be pinned to the cross to die. That's what we need to do. How often? Daily. Daily. 1 Corinthians 15, 30 and 31 says, And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord because I die. How often? Daily. Humble submission. I know I want to do this. I'm not going to because I am dead. My life is hidden in Christ, as Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says. But man, it's not just good enough to have a solution. It's best that if you never got to this place in your life, that you stay there. You take prevention. Prevent yourself from getting into a situation like Samson did. And that means to reckon yourself in letter F. Reckon yourself a servant of righteousness. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust thereof and will possess your body and soul. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians nine, verse twenty-four. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? In other words, they're giving it their everything. They're giving it their all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. No one runs in a race. Anybody here in track, cross country? Do you run so you can get second place? No. You're in it to win it. And you're going to give your absolute all in order to make sure you win it. I had mentioned this on Wednesday, but I think about this verse. I think about this whole idea of, you know, we always tend to grade and judge ourselves based upon this kind of spectrum of, you know, uh, bad, uh, mediocre, good, great. Man, I did horrible. I did horrible in that track race or that cross-country meet. I did horrible here. I did it okay here. When it comes to our Christian service, why is bad and mediocre even on the spectrum? We shouldn't even start there. When it comes to our Christian walk, when it comes to us standing before the judgment seat of Christ, it should never be, oh, Lord, I kind of did an okay job. Banish it from the spectrum. When it comes to my service, when it comes to me as a husband or me as a, as a father, I don't want to judge my, my service based upon 
bad, poor, mediocre, good, great. No, I want to start at good. To whereas if I did a horrible job, at least, at the very least, I can say I was a good father. I want to judge my parenting and my service in the Lord as good, great, uh, world-impacting, forever changing the course of human history. That is what I'm going to aim for, is that I raise my boys to forever change the course of this planet, being the last soldiers of the church age before we're raptured out of here. But if I fail, I want it to at least be, okay, I was good. I was a good father. I got my kids. I led my kids to the Lord. But I don't want to aim there. I want to run the race to run all, to win, that I might obtain that prize. And every man, verse 25, that striveth for the mastery is what? Temperate in all things. If you are a runner or you are involved in any kind of sport, you cannot just have a free-for-all with whatever you want to eat, drink, and put into your body. You want to guard even substances or, or supplements that you put into your body. You need to be temperate. If you're striving for that, you need to have control over all of your faculties. Because we're all in this race. We're all in the race in our walk with Christ, according to Hebrews 12. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So therefore run, or I therefore so run, not as uncertainty. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. You know what that word implies? It implies you're a slave driver. Your body is your slave. You're the master. You have the control over your faculties, over whether or not you let it run you or you run it. Bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. No one's going to listen to me because I'm a hypocrite. So what's your testimony like at school? If you were tomorrow to start preaching and witnessing to your friends at school, are they going to laugh at you because they're like, you? You're telling me this? I know you. You don't believe these things. What's your testimony like? We don't have time to read Romans chapter 6. I really wanted to look at all of it because, man, it's just chock full of good stuff in there as far as what really happened to us in the moment of salvation and how we are to yield our members. We are to yield our body and our mind and our heart, yield it unto Christ and not be a servant to sin, not be a servant to unrighteousness. Romans 13, 14, we looked at it last week, but I wanted to go back over it again. Uh, it says to make no provision for your flesh. Make no provision for your flesh. I'll do it this way so it doesn't look like I'm flicking you off. Make no provision for your flesh. If this is providing you with things to fulfill your lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes and the pride of life, you do not need this. You don't. I'm telling you, you do not need it. There are ways, there are apps that you can have. You shut down your app store and you have an accountability partner open it for you when you need updates and things. If this struggles for you, there are ways of escape. There are ways to yield if you are willing. If you are willing to do your part and say, yes, I will go so far as to not make provision for the flesh. I'll even delete certain apps that are causing me to struggle. I don't care if my friends are like, where'd you go? I haven't seen any snaps from you in a while. How to get rid of it. Make no provision for your flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Because in Galatians 5... This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, 
Last week, I, we talked about the reins in the heart, where God, especially for the, that letter B of your recap, you know, we're to be sober in thought, sight, and word in order to possess the reins of our heart. And I started thinking about that phrase again, you know, just about controlling our emotions, not letting our emotions control us and everything else that we talked about. And I was like, let me find out that phrase again where it's at. And you realize that the phrase reigns of the heart is found nowhere in Scripture? I went back through, I was like, I just taught on this. It has to be. It's not. Every time it's mentioned, it's reigns and heart. So what does that imply? two are separate. I'm like, okay, so based upon what I just taught and went over with you guys, I got to look up what is reins, the definition, because I think I know what it is. It's like a bridle. We even talked about that, and it is like that. But you know how God uses it? Reins is another word for kidneys. Look it up. Do everything we've been looking at for the last couple weeks about the strong concordance. The exact same word for reins in the Bible is kidneys. And heavily, heavily influenced in Leviticus with the offerings of the sacrificial animal. And I remember I was even talking with some of you in here. I'm like, I, just, I can't wrap my mind around why would God say he tries the hearts and, or, or he searches the hearts and tries the reins, the kidneys. And I started trying to make a connection between our hearts and our kidneys and how you know, again, even a kidney, it, it takes the oxygen from the blood that our heart is pumping and it filters out the wastes, the toxins that are going to destroy the body. I just winked pretty heavily for those of you listening on podcast. Get that connection. But I still, it's like, ah, it's just, so what does that mean practically? What is the, the kidneys practically in our walk with Christ? And then last night, at about 12.15, this morning, actually, about 12.15, I came across something and I was like, holy crap, I'm thinking about this all wrong. I was thinking about it from a human standpoint and not an animal standpoint. Because you know that when it came to an offering in Levitical law, they were to take all of the organs and they were to sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And the reason why the kidneys are highlighted in Leviticus so many times over is because the kidneys were surrounded and engulfed in fat. And fat from an animal, as it is a burnt offering, provided a great fire, a great burnt offering that God loved. He even highlights specifically the fat of the kidneys. It was appeasing and appealing unto him because of that. And it's not only what is surrounding the kidneys, but it is the position and the location of the kidneys. From an animal's perspective, do you know that the kidneys, it is one of the most inaccessible organs on an animal. Jamie, I don't know if it's that way with a human or not. But from an animal's perspective, it was when they were harvesting all the organs, the kidneys were the very last ones. It was so inaccessible, it was so deep, that it had to take a lot of digging. It had to take a lot of cutting. It had to take a lot of work just to go in and get the most inaccessible, hidden part of that animal so that it could be placed upon an altar as a sacrifice of the best kind for the Lord. That's why whenever you see David talking about the reins in the Bible, 
And even Job, Job talking about how God, through this trial he's going in, he was shredding aside. His reins were torn asunder because this trial was digging up all of the inner workings, the inner man of Job and who he was so that he could be more purified as a result of this burning sacrifice, this burning fiery trial to test him. When it comes to the reins, as an animal's perspective, it's the inner man. It is the deepest part of you that not even your friends and family know about. It is that part of you that if you're not temperate, it's those deep-seated dark sins that nobody else knows about. But if you're temperate, it's that inner being of you. It's that best part of you that God wants to take and He wants to bring it to the surface and He wants you to do your part to lay it on the altar and say, God, I've not been giving you my best. I'll sacrifice this and I'll sacrifice that, but there's just something personally within me in the deepest part of me that I'm holding on to and I'm not willing to lay it down at the altar. Sometimes it comes through a trial like Job had. Sometimes it comes through David and his sin for him to come out and say, Lord, you've searched my reins, even the parts of me that nobody else knows. So here I am. I've come to the end of myself and I'm going to take the best of, your, of me, the best and the deepest part of me. I'm going to offer it as the best kind of offering. I'm going to give you my best for you to take and to do what you will with. You do that, you'll add to your faith temperance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so very much for the power of your word. Pray that you would lead us. Pray that you would guide us. I pray that as we continue to worship going into the main service, I pray that there'd be something in main service that just continues to hit and hammer us that goes in line perfectly with today. And God, start drawing out that which is inaccessible. Start drawing out our deepest part of ourselves, the best part of ourselves that you want, the parts of ourselves that we've not given over to you yet, that we've not sacrificed and laid down on the altar yet. Draw it out of us this day, and may we give it back to you because you're worthy of it. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.